Good afternoon. It's Friday the 21st of July 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. It's great to be with you, Mike. And uh, by video link, we've got Alex Thompson today. So uh, we're going to get kicked off straight away with the online safety bill uh, and the issue of surveillance, because it's not just the online safety bill that we need to be looking at here. Now, of course, we've heard over the last couple of uh, weeks at Signal, WhatsApp, Apple and others uh, are opposing the online safety bill because it's enabling mass surveillance. Uh, but as I say, it's not just the online safety bill, it's also uh, the Investigatory Powers Act. Now, the Investigatory Powers Act has been in place for a long time, of course. Uh, it allows the government to uh, bulk collect data on your uh, internet activity and hold it for 12 months at a time, sort of rolling 12 months. That's probably why we should all be using VPNs on a daily basis. But the UK, UK government wants to uh, massively expand the scope of this. So let's just have a look at what they're saying here. Uh, this will all be happening through secondary legislation. So tech companies uh, will have to clear new security features with the Home Office before they're implemented. So if you're a tech company and you're providing a messaging service and you want to improve the security of that messaging service, You've got to ask the UK government if you're allowed to do that. That's what they're proposing. Uh, the next thing is, uh, let's bring the next one on screen. Non-UK companies will have to apply with changes which impact globally. Uh, this is what Apple is particularly concerned about. So if they have to uh, implement something here, that, that they won't be able to just have it for the UK. They're going to have to effectively roll that out across the world. Uh, for example, breaking end-to-end -end encryption. This is also a target of the online safety bill. Uh, and then finally, uh, tech companies will have to respond immediately to notices uh, rather than wait for the result of any appeal. So what does that mean? What kind of notices are we talking about? Well, there are three notices under the Investigatory Powers Act. The first one is a data retention notice, and that requires the retention of communications data, which might be who, when, where, and how, for example, by operators. Uh, the second kind of notice that comes under this is the technical capability notice, which requires operators to provide and maintain technical capabilities, enabling the government or enabling the tech companies to respond to government uh, requests for information and what they're describing as IPA authorizations. And finally, national security notices, which require the telecoms operator uh, to take uh, such specified steps as the Secretary of State considers necessary in the interests of national security. So that can basically be anything. This may include providing services or facilities for the purpose of facilitating or assisting an intelligence service to carry out its functions. So this is bulk data collection on a scale we haven't seen before. Uh, the IPA also specifies that those persons in receipt of a notice or any person employed or engaged for the purposes of that person's business may not disclose the existence or contents of the notice to any other person without permission of the Secretary of State. And for this reason, it is, the, it is Home Office policy to neither, to neither confirm nor deny the existence of any notices. So that's uh, what they are intending to do. This, the, what we're seeing with the online sa safety bill doesn't even scratch the surface of this. Uh, now, there is a consultation which is running at the moment on this expansion of the Investigatory Powers Act, revised Investigatory Investigatory Powers Act Notices Regimes Consultation. It runs until the 31st of July, 2023. So there's still time to take part in this. And if you want to take part in it, uh, you need to uh, send a message to IPA Notices Consultation at homeoffice.gov.uk. So coming back very briefly onto the national, onto the online safety bill itself, that has been going through the House of Lords. Uh, and there's been an amendment made uh, to that. Uh, it's been passed by the House of Lords uh, and what does that do? It basically requires uh, the government to confirm that whenever they're asking for uh, a tech company to provide access to end-to-end -end, end -end encrypted material. So in other words, tech companies are going to be required under Patrick, as we know, the guise of child sexual imagery, uh, protecting from that. Uh, they're going to require tech companies to scan end-to-end -end encrypted messages effectively breaking end-to-end -end encryption, but that, that any request for companies to do that will now have to go through what's being described as a skilled person. Now, we don't know what that means uh, because, of course, not defined very well, but that's what the amendment does. Everybody uh, that's sort of commenting on this is saying this doesn't go nearly far enough, doesn't even scratch the surface, in fact. And then finally, on the online safety bill itself, I just want to mention this from the Open Rights Group because another organization now has had a legal opinion about whether the online safety bill is actually uh, legal or not. Uh, and uh, this is basically what they're saying. 
Uh, there are real and significant issues regarding the lawfulness of a clause in the online safety bill, which requires social media platforms to proactively screen their users' content and prevent them from seeing anything deemed illegal. Uh, the opinion finds that there's likely to be significant interference with freedom of expression that is unforeseeable, which is thus not prescribed by law. So um, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I'd be interested to get your thoughts, particularly on the investigatory powers uh, legislation. Well, I wanted to comment on one specific part of what you had on the uh, investigative power, uh, powers legislation. It was the bit about uh, if anybody is contacted that they can't tell anybody. Is that so, right? So basically, the, the government will make a notice to the uh, telecoms companies or to the provider of the uh, device that you're using, uh, providing them with one of those three notices that we talked about. And that company, nor any employee of that company, is allowed to tell anybody else that that notice has been received. So uh, they are not allowed to inform their customer, for example, uh, that, the, that a notice has been received, asking them to start uh, logging data uh, of that customer. So effectively, the government's extending its uh, uh, national security official secrets umbrella to the corporation at that point. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. So this reminds me of the Stasi in East Germany. Uh, is that the society we want? So, but on the, uh, the whether this um, uh, it breaches this uh, breaking into encryption, et cetera, Mike, breaches international law here, uh, which you've just put up, th this really comes down to the fundamental argument about, you know, you need to weigh the potential risk of a few against all of the rights and civil liberties of everybody. And, you know, if we look back at a basic utilitarian argument there, um, it really doesn't hold water. Mm. So we are basically uh, jettisoning everything that we've built society on uh, post-enlightenment and all of the democratic systems and rights that we've built up, oh, precedent law, and it's being basically swept away here. On what? For what reason? Because of the potential risk because of this uh, problem that supposedly is ubiquitous, but really it is a problem. Let's not argue that it is, but is this the way to, you know, should everybody give up their rights and privacy just for that potential risk? Uh, no, they shouldn't. And of course, Alex, this is really about training uh, AI. Yes, there will be more about AI and intelligence later in this news. And of course, that's exactly what it is for. Um, we no doubt will put in the show notes um, an interview we had with two experts on AI, Jobst Landgraber and Barry Smith, that talked uh, particularly about this, that AI is binary, it's black and white. It doesn't have human judgment at all. Uh, people often get lost in the weeds with these intelligence issues and what's justified. Well, even if you're outside the US, which has its Fourth Amendment and its specified language of unreasonable searches and seizures, um, people will be aware that the whole Anglo-Saxon legal tradition based in this area is based on the idea that you must have probable cause. The Americans, of course, got that from the best of the English tradition. And in theory, if not in practice, we have that still in English law too. You have to give probable cause. What's been obviated in what you've just outlined, Mike, is there's no test of reasonableness, certainly no judicial or parliamentary involvement. The Secretary of State, that is the executive branch policing his own patch, says, I think this is necessary. That's binary again, that's zero one. So the Secretary of State's judgment has itself become a kind of computer. Yes. Okay, well, let's uh, move on from that to another form of, uh, well, perhaps there's a certain amount of bulk data collection in all this. Patrick, FedNow has been rolled out. Rolled out yesterday morning here. So what is FedNow? This is supposedly here. Um, well, we asked that question in a second, but uh, the fast payment network. So the question is, um, is this the CBDC? Is this the first step to the central bank digital currency that we've talked about, that many others are talking about? It's quite quite a big conversation now. And the question is, the answer to that question is... Well, uh, before we get on to that, I just want to, to, to highlight this, uh, because this is Project FAST. Uh, and, that, and the question is, where is FedNow coming from? And it seems to be that, that FedNow plus other fast payment systems around the world are basically based on the framework that this comes from. This is the World Bank, Project FAST. It's about frictionless, affordable, safe, timely transactions. But look who it's funded by, Patrick, in the bottom right hand of that uh, slide, sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This is perhaps not a surprise to anybody. Uh, their little uh, website has a nice... Uh, graph of the world showing a graphic of the world showing exactly where uh, fast has been rolled out or is in the process of being rolled out at the moment, including the United States. So uh, let's come back to Fed now. Well, the question I was about to ask 
<laughs> which I didn't get to finish asking is, is FedNow the uh, first step of the rollout of the central bank digital currency? And the answer is clearly yes. Um, that's the point that I was previously going to make. Um, slightly lost my train of thought. Sorry about that. Um, but uh, anyway, so here's the Bank of International Settlements. Uh, this is the website here. They've released this report a couple of weeks ago. I don't know sure if you've covered it or not. But the blueprint for a future monetary system, improving the old, enabling the new. Uh, very important report. You can see the PDF link uh, down at the bottom there. Uh, so let's just look at that for a moment here. Here's the report. You can uh, basically find this online. Uh, we've read this report. I've read most of it. And the language in here, quite frankly, is shocking. Uh, this is the, the, the type of language, the pejorative language, um, the uh, assumptions that central banks have these certain attributes that the public uh, trust and love and so forth. You have to remember they've been operating basically an opaque system. So it goes through the tokenization of, of, of the new monetary system under this new regime. Uh, and you can see, so it, it's great detail here. This is a good uh, guide here for what they have in store. So I, I encourage people to go read this document and try to learn and understand um, what's in here. But we'll give you the basic boil down of this uh, as, as well. So let's look at the key points. What are they actually showing here? What is this, well, FedNow or this central bank digital currency, what they're proposing here is a real-time settlement on the blockchain of transactions. So a tokenization of assets. Um, again, we can go into very deep detail on each of these bullet points, but this is just a summary. A global unified ledger of assets, okay? And also uh, a private ledger for banks, this is important, but an open retail ledger for the public. So they have their own sort of system behind a wall uh, and certain privileges, and you will have a different open uh, transparent system that everybody can see and track and, and, and is programmable. And they're, uh, they're putting interoperability as the main feature, and this is ISO 222. So that's like the SWIFT messaging system. So that's the uh, data, enhanced data that goes with every transaction. So this to a token, just understand that a token or a transaction is basically a package of data. And so what is the data have now on a SWIFT transaction? It's limited. What is it going to have with this? Unlimited and also interoperability with other big databases. So you can see the potential for this with programmable currencies, which is what we'll show you in a second, is pretty immense and quite horrifying, actually. So, and uh, a smart contracts and the internet of things marries those two concepts in this document. So now we can see what the internet of things was for and, and how it fits into this uh, new financial world order. So very clearly, smart contracts, if you're familiar with Ethereum and some of these other blockchain technologies, that's the basis of that. Again, much more complicated than what we're saying here. We're giving you a basic uh, summary here. So let's look at the rest. The total centralization, no peer-to-peer. -peer. That's the main point, okay? This is what they're communicating. Centralization's good. Decentralization, not good. No peer-to-peer -peer transactions allowed. They're too risky. Central banks are the only trusted source of money. They boast about this throughout the document time and time again. They say, we are trusted. We've earned the trust of the global public because we're that trustworthy. They keep repeating that over and over. And therefore, we're the only ones who should be doing transactions. Central banks will have sovereign immunity, okay? That means they are sovereign immune for everything, basically. So that private ledger that we showed you, the central bank's own books, that has sovereign immunity. So they can do as they wish, to who they wish, and whatever. They're not liable, really, for anything, according to this. Cryptocurrency is bad, uh, fundamentally, and decentralization is dangerous as a concept. So that's the basic takeaway of what's in this BIS document. Uh, know it and learn it. So We've got a really nice paper that was written here called The Seven Pillars of the CBD System that gets into some of the details of this. These are the seven pillars of the CBD system. You can see security issuance, the ISO 222, instant payment, cross-border settlement, digital ID, stable coins. The holy trinity here, Mike, is the social credit, the digital wallet, 
and the CBDC. These things, these three things are, they go together and they become fully operable once this system goes live. So that's, that's the really important takeaway uh, on this. So in, you know, just a little bit of a background, the, 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 the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, this is a great book here, The Tower of Basel. It goes into um, all of the various things, how this bank was funded and some of the nefarious activities that they get up to. And just think about, you know, the HSBC drug money laundering scandal, Mike, and all, all these other things that we've seen time and time again, all these scandals, those happen behind their wall, behind their curtain. Nothing changes here for the central banks. They carry on business as usual, but we get a new trackable, uh, completely controlled surveillance-based system. That's, that's the, 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 the gist of this. So uh, here, here's the story here. The Guardian reported this. I think this was, what, eight years ago? How the Bank of England helped the Nazis sell uh, gold stolen from the Czechs um, and from the Bank of International Settlements. They facilitated that. So, and here's, here's a good guide here. You mentioned this we, before the show, Mike. The Atlantic Council has put here the Central Bank Digital Currency Tracker. What is this? This is basically a guide to say around the world uh, how far countries are along the line of adoption on this. So they've got an interactive map here. So you go to this website and you can pull it up and you can see the different countries. The green countries are in a pilot. The aqua countries are in development. Uh, the purple countries are just at the research stage. And a few of them have canceled. That's Nigeria. They're the only ones who have actually implemented it with a huge backlash. They're uh, the, uh, magenta, uh, the pink magenta countries there. And then in terms of other countries, you've got um, uh, Russia also, uh, along with India. They have pilot programs going on this, as does China, as does Australia. As we said, the Fed now, uh, this needs to be updated, I guess. Well, they haven't done it officially, the CBDC. A few countries have canceled it. Okay, and what are those countries? Those will be in that color there. That's Ecuador. Ecuador has shelved this whole program. They've basically abandoned it. And Senegal as well in Africa. And I think maybe one more country, I'm not sure. But anyway, that's a good thing uh, to give you an idea of where this project is globally. So go to the Atlantic Council's website. I don't, I'm not endorsing the Atlantic Council because I think it's a very corrupt and nefarious uh, deep state organization. But if you want to find out how far along this thing is, there's the timeline, the race for future money. You can see they're pushing this pretty hard, Mike. Indeed, which takes us to a little bit of video. Right. So here is, uh, here is the, one of the chiefs uh, of the Bank of, for International Settlements talking about the programmable money, programmable currency. And this is perhaps the most horrifying aspect of the CBDC. Let's watch this. Aren't our analysis on CBDC in particular for the use of general to the general use, uh, we tend to establish the equivalence with cash. Uh, and there is a huge difference there. Uh, for example, in cash, uh, we don't know, for example, who's using a $100 bill today. We don't know who is using a 1,000 peso bill today. Uh, a key difference in, with the CBDC is that central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that uh, expression of central bank liability. And also we will have the technology to enforce that. Those, are, those two issues are extremely important and that makes a huge difference with respect to what, uh, to what cash is. So what do you think about that? That's Augustine uh, Carson. He's a uh, spokesperson, I guess, for the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland. Well, uh, I mean, what can we say about it? It's, the, the whole thing is about the control of uh, uh, people's transactions. And I don't think we can... I've, I keep saying we can't look at one particular area of policy these days in on its own. We've got to look at it in the broader picture of what other... Uh, developments are so when you take that uh, that and we're going to come on to Nigel Farage again in a second we take that issue and we take the online safety issue uh, and what we're allowed to say online behavioral economics side of things behavioral change these are all coming together into into one pretty unpleasant uh, future for ourselves if we allow it to continue 
And uh, so he, he's really talking about the cash there, saying how dangerous cash is because the central bank doesn't know where the money's going or coming from. Right. So, the, 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 so we have to basically relinquish all of our privacy for, for financial transactions or uh, custodial assets because of what? Because of terrorists, arms dealers, or, uh, human traffickers, and organized crime. So that's what he's proposing. So they have the tools for a 15-minute city, for instance. Your your currency could be programmed to not be usable outside of your uh, the M25 or your restrictions of movement. Add the carbon restrictions in there for the environment. You can see where this is going, right? Yeah, particularly if you take into account that people trafficking organized crime, this is stuff which is state-sponsored in many cases. It's all around conflict zones, which states are behind. It's not us as individuals that are behind these conflict zones. We're not doing the people trafficking. It, so, But we're, that's the excuse being used to shut us down. And here's the one you'll absolutely love, Mike. Um, they want to avoid the risk of an early exeter of depositors to prevent bank runs. So they will keep the money that you take and, and will control it so that the people who get out early or late will have the same uh, uh, status on their, on their money. So who causes bank runs? Is it people or is it banks? Mm. Look at the Silicon Valley Bank. Total um, incompetency caused the crash, right. not the depositors. So the, the, it's funny how the banks created the problems and now they've got all the solutions for this. So, and one of the other things they're gonna do, if we look up on screen here, um, the Restrict Act, we talked about this in previous uh, programs, Mike, this was going to make VPNs illegal. Mm. So what they're, what they're concerned about, and this was pushing back here, this is a great activist website here, Stop the Restrict Act. So the, the, they want to control the on-ramps and the off-ramps to things like cryptocurrency exchanges and also get rid of anonymity. This is a really high priority. Mm -hmm. It's a very important for them. So this is really important. So this is, this is the type of activism that stopped the Restrict Act here. So there is hope in that sense. So this, the, you can see where it's going with the tech now. They're going to move on VPNs as well. They don't want the uh, ability to have any anonymity online. Um, or be able to use any encryption, as you said before. Mm -hmm. So this is a, there's a war on right now, and it's really going to be up to, in America, they're really mobilizing and pushing back against this. What's happening in the UK, I'm not sure, or in Europe, but in America, the, people are starting to realize, including elected representatives, that this might not be a good hill to die on mm -hmm. as a congressman or a senator. This brings us to another cancellation uh, issue with a bank, and it's Nigel Farage. Um, so we're familiar, you've reported, we've reported on this with his cancellation right. of Coots, part of the NatWest group. So he had a town hall meeting, uh, I believe it was in Newport, South Wales, uh, recently, it was uh, on GB News, and uh, he said a few interesting things, and we'd like to comment on those afterwards. Here's Nigel Farage on this issue. Since I spoke out a couple of weeks ago, about the way I've been treated by Coots, a subsidiary of NatWest Bank. The public reaction has been truly astonishing. I've asked people, please come forward and tell me whether you've got a problem with your bank. We booked this venue some time ago, but would you believe this venue, this club, that has banked with NatWest for 55 years, currently has its accounts suspended? You see, what I've learned is this is not just about me, far, far from it. And it's not just about other political figures. It's about thousands of people all over this country, summarily having their bank accounts, both personal and business, closed. And that's why I decided to go public. I have to say, Surely never before, after this, a letter was published. It was sent to me on email and then published more widely. And it comes from Dame Alison Rose, the group chief executive officer of the NatWest Group. Remember, this bank that has 19 million customers. Dear Mr. Farage, I am writing to apologize for the deeply inappropriate comments about yourself made in the now published papers prefer, prepared for the Wealth Committee. Group CEO. I would like to make I welcome the FCA's reviews of regulatory rules associated with politically exposed persons and we will implement the recommendations of our review alongside any changes that they or the government makes to the overall regulatory framework, yours sincerely, Alison Rose. And what I've actually been told, quietly, privately, is that you were forced into doing this by the Treasury. But at least you've done it, I suppose. And let's remember, Dame Alison, you call it the Wealth Committee, its real name is the Reputational Risk and Wealth Committee, 
and it was set up following your diversity review. So a, a number of uh, interesting points there, but he's introduced this term person, what is it, uh, politically exposed person? Person, yeah. So we'll come on to that in a second. What did Rishi have to say? Well, uh, just what, what Nigel said I want to point out was really important is during the diversity review, this is when they implemented the, this new uh, regime, okay? So under the ESG banner, diversity, equity, inclusion. So all of these things that we've been throwing red flags up about over the last couple of years, this is the end result of it. This is boots on the ground right now. So it's actually happened. Now you can see what we were warning about uh, for so long. So... I'm going to say I'm going to compliment the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, for tweeting this. He said, regarding Farage's cancellation with Coots and NatWest, he said, this is wrong. No one should be barred from using basic services for their political views. Free speech is the cornerstone of our democracy. Now, you're being very <laughs> polite there and you're saying, you're saying something quite positive. But I'm trying. Look at the words. No one should be barred. That that that's political speech. He can say that. He can say that while still having the policy that Nigel Farage and others should be barred. So we just got to be a little bit careful, I think, in in interpreting what is coming out of these people's mouths. But at least this is on Twitter. It's on the record, and it's yeah. not going to get deleted. So he has to hang his reputation on that statement, at least. I right. take your point. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let's just look at politically exposed persons. This is the House of Commons Library Research Briefing on politically exposed persons regime. Uh, so let's just briefly have a look at what they say. Uh, political, uh, sorry, the politically exposed persons are individuals around the world with prominent public functions. Obvious examples are government ministers and members of parliament. Uh, they say the law recognised the risk of PEPs abusing their positions for private gain and using the financial system to launder the proceeds of this abuse. Uh, PEPs, as well as their families and close associates, must therefore go through enhanced security when using the services of certain firms that act as gatekeepers to the financial system, such as banks. Uh, and they say the Financial Action Task Force is an international body that sets and monitors anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing standards its recommendations, including on uh, PEPs, have been adopted at EU level through directives, which have been implemented in the UK by secondary legislation. Alex, what confuses me here is that uh, Nigel Farage has clearly been labelled a per politically exposed person, but by that definition, he shouldn't have been because he's not a government minister. He's not a, an officer of the state of any kind. Uh, he's a commentator at this stage. He's not even a politician. So what... How, how has this happened? That Maybe you don't know the answer to this, but clearly the, the definition is being expanded massively. It's definition creep, Mike. It's a variant of mission creep. The EU started chattering about PEPs in the first few months of it being a buzzword in Brussels. One was given to understand that it was Russian tycoons in Malta and Cyprus under EU purview, basically, who would be uh, held in check because they might get their mistresses or their sons to hold their bribery wealth. That's uh, crept and crept to the position we now have. And far from it being PEPs, uh, I would suggest that some British banks are now understanding this acronym as PUPs, politically undesirable persons. Um, so that this, these things happen by not being challenged. And if you look at Farage's uh, disclosures, which he managed to uh, wheedle out of the RBS group, uh, those papers for which uh, the group uh, chair, chairwoman is apologising now, uh, however, insincerely, it's clear that the woke generation within the bank see it as their uh, their task. They found this as the, uh, to be the peg, the peb, that the idea of a PEP is a pet peg on which they can hang the coat of their, their social mission. I'm only just glad that uh, her predecessor didn't manage to get me to work for Coots because when I left rugby school, Sir Ewan Ferguson, who was chairman of the governing body at the school and also chairman of the Coots Bank at the time and thus the Queen's Banker, suggested strongly to me that I was an acceptable person uh, to follow in his footsteps. But uh, I could see then uh, that they would be very susceptible to political wins. Yeah. Okay. And also uh, to, to that point, in America, uh, this would include somebody who's a political activist. This term is used there. And to debank uh, somebody who is involved in uh, helping to build a section of the wall, build a wall, that campaign, mm. uh, Dustin Stockton, he was labeled as a, a pep. Uh, and then completely cancelled across every institution. So it, he wasn't even, you know, political office holder or anything like that. So, and if you look on the compliance 
companies that are pr providing the digital tools, the AI or machine learning digital tools to scan the web to, to create a risk profile for a potential PEP. The list that they have for basically what they're profiling is talk about definition creep, what Alex is talking about. It is as long as your arm. I mean, it's going to just expand. So the AI tools, the computerized tools that banks will use in order to scan the internet um, to create a profile about anybody applying for a bank or a loan or anything at that bank, those tools, you go and read those companies' websites and you, right. will, you will be horrified um, with the power and what these things are totally automated, totally impersonal. And probably that's judge, jury, and executioner right there within the black box. Uh, and uh, if we imagine how bad it is now, imagine how it's going to be under a CBDC regime. It enables all of that to happen in real time. Absolutely. And across every platform. So people, you, um, you, you got to get sort of organized on this, I think, uh, pretty quickly. <laughs> so, so let's move on to Ukraine then, uh, Patrick. Right. So just uh, let's, let's give an update on what's happening here. Uh, with the conflict uh, in Ukraine. Uh, I think you're uh, kicking this one off. Well, indeed, because I just want to mention uh, uh, Ben Wallace and his comment that Ukraine has tragically become a battle lab. Uh, that's a pretty tragic statement in itself, uh, and he seems to be quite proud of that fact. But uh, moving on to the Kirsch Bridge, we mentioned this on Monday, uh, a little bit more on this. So this is going back to 2018, because uh, the Kirsch Bridge opened in 2018. Uh, and at the time, Alan Duncan, uh, said this, the opening of the bridge represents yet another violation of Ukraine's sovereignty and a further example of Russia's reckless behavior. This was the rhetoric from the British government in 2018. And the Russians in return said, as for relations between Russia and Great Britain, they're indeed at the worst level probably in history. Well, that was 2018. Things have got even worse since then. But I wanted to remind everybody, back in October last year, uh, the Grey Zone published this uh, this is Kit Klarenberg exposed before Ukraine blew up Kerch Bridge. British spies plotted it. Uh, and what he's saying here is that, that uh, the secret British intelligence plot to blow up Crimea's Kerch Bridge is revealed in internal documents and correspondence ex ex obtained exclusively by the Grey Zone. Uh, and uh, so they're talking about, they're saying, uh, Kit's saying uh, the Kerch Bridge was attacked on October the 8th, suicide bombing apparently overseen by Ukraine's SBU intelligence services. He goes on to say this, detailed proposals by, uh, for providing audacious support to Kiev's maritime raiding operations were drafted at the request of Chris Donnelly. Now, Chris Donnelly, uh, he describes as a senior British Army intelligence operative and a veteran high-ranking NATO advisor. Those, that is absolutely correct. But of course, he's more famous in recent years for being in charge of the Integrity Initiative, uh, Russia uh, propaganda machine. Uh, the wide-ranging plan's core component was the destruction of the bridge over the Kerch Strait. And he provides a couple of the slides from Chris Donnelly's presentation. I'm not going to go into the details of that now. You can have a look at that on the article. Uh, but this comes up to date now with a couple of days ago. Uh, another article from uh, Kit on the uh, Grey Zone leaked file suggests hidden British hand in latest Kerch Bridge strike. Uh, and he's saying this time the SBU appears to have used unmanned submarines to target the Kerch Bridge with explosives. A review of leaked files previously revealed by the Grey Zone provides some solid basis for again blaming Donnelly's cabal. So he highlights one organization here, Prevail, Prevail Partners, as the cutout enlisted to train a secret uh, Ukrainian partisan army to target Russian territory with terror attacks. Uh, Prevail pledged to provide, he alleges, the SBU with extensive targeted expertise and technology for operations targeting Crimea. Uh, so this is uh, the Prevail Partners website, a British risk management company, that's how they describe themselves, harnessing operational expertise from our world-class team, providing <laughs> operational support, intelligence services, and leading capabilities, and supporting clients to deliver positive impacts. Well, was this a positive impact on the Kerch Bridge? It depends on your point of view, I suppose. Uh, the Grey Zone article goes on to say, uh, from the perspective of Donnelly's intelligence cabal, the Odessa branch of the Ukrainian SBU was perfectly positioned to wreak havoc on Crimea. Uh, located just over the Black Sea and filled with hardcore Maidan operatives, the unit signed a technical support agreement with Prevail and Thomas and Winslow, a self-described crisis management company. Uh, so let's look at their website. This is what it looks like. There's nothing much else there, but it, I do note that it, in the bottom paragraph there, it says, in addition to our work in Afghanistan, uh, Thomas and Winslow, is also establishing operations in Ukraine. The ongoing crisis 
in the region, which has been uh, precipitated by Russia's aggression, has created a need for versatile and reliable support for the Ukrainian government, people and industries. Okay. So it looks a bit glowy, that website, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Uh, and then finally, coming back to the Grey Zone, again, as part of the assessment by Prevail, representatives of the British company and uh, TIW confidentially met in person with Odessa's uh, SBU's deputy director. Uh, the secret, this summit focused heavily on targeting and specialist capabilities to support that function. Prevail and TIW felt they could add huge benefit to the SBU's existing human intelligence and electronic data uh, capture capabilities and so on. So uh, again, the gray zone uh, using uh, leaked documents are making some significant allegations and I do recommend people go and read those. And on top of this, Scott Ritter uh, in a recent interview, um, I don't have it to hand, but uh, it's on YouTube, one of his recent interviews, um, he basically is uh, blaming the British for the this latest attack with the unmanned underwater of drones. And uh, he's basically saying they're the only country that really has that tech. The Ukraine couldn't possibly deploy it and use it with any degree of skill and accuracy uh, like the British could. Um, and so he's placing the blame squarely on the UK yes. uh, for that. And uh, like the, the specialist diving teams like the DTXG and so forth. So the, listen, pedigree, form, uh, capability, um, it's not really in the profile of the Ukrainian armed forces on this. Uh, but in the meantime, the allegation is that in response and retaliation for this attack on the Kerch Bridge, uh, they're attacking, the Russians are attacking the uh, grain stores in Odessa. So if it was the Ukrainians or the British or them together or, or NATO or whatever, what is the motive for this attack? Was it just to, you know, terrorize the Russians? No, it was the bigger, uh, there's a bigger motive at play. So Ru Russia has basically launched immediately in retaliation massive strikes on Odessa, uh, hitting all sorts of uh, port uh, assets and so forth. We've also seen reports on telegr a Russian telegram of uh, uh, NATO specialists being evacuating uh, from, from Odessa uh, at this time as well. So, and so as a result, Russia is imposing security restrictions on the Black Sea humanitarian corridor. Now we're getting down to the plot here. Mm -hmm. So why, so how, who benefits this situation. Well, it basically brings the so-called grain deal to a screeching halt uh, for starters. And there's a, a, a number of other details um, beneath this that show that it looks, Mike, it looks to me like this was, a this was an act to cause a reaction by Russia uh, and to perhaps create a narrative in the global community that there's a global food crisis and this is Russia's fault and people are going to starve in Africa because of uh, Putin's uh, hitting Odessa, of course, not talking at all about what triggered this. So from Russia's point of view, this was a security red line. They have always, they have always responded um, proportionately in kind, or maybe a little bit harder than when they were hit. So they always wait, then there's the counter strike. Russia is very predictable in that sense. It's always a uh, response like for like. So, and we go on here. So, and this is another reason why banning RT in the UK and Europe might not be a great idea because you might miss stories like this. Kiev threatens to sink civilian ships bound for Russia. Okay, so this is the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense warns that uh, on uh, July 21st, all vessels heading in the waters of the Black Sea in the direction of seaports of the Russian Federation may be considered by Ukraine to be carrying military cargo with all associated risks. Okay, now the, the amount of traffic in the Black Sea right now for, to Russian ports is immense. Mm -hmm. So what exactly are they saying here? Is this a, a potential crisis? If a statement like this internationally? Mm -hmm. Think about that for a moment. There's Russian grain coming out of Russian ports to the world. Right. More, much more Russian grain, in fact. So, and then, so here we go. The, on the grain story here of, again, five EU nations are pushing to extend the ban. So there's th these are the countries in, in Europe. They don't want Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, Romania, Bulgaria. They don't want the Ukrainian grain because they say it's distorting the markets. So what's happened with all this grain? That 70%, it was all supposed to go to the starving poor of the global south. 70% of it has gone to, quote, rich countries, these Ukrainian grain. And only 3%, 3% has gone to Somalia, Yemen, Sudan, all of these so-called poor countries in the global south, only 3%. But as, as, as anyone would know when they're looking at uh, any of the league tables on these, 
Russia supplies 20% of the global grain supply. And Ukraine is only around 5%. So this is worth about $6 billion a year, $500 million a month to Ukraine. So there's some money they make from it, but it's being resold for profit in Europe. Mm. So it's not doing what it's intended to do. And it's, it appears that the West have tried to derail this so-called deal at every turn anyway. And uh, this latest attack on the Cursed Bridge seems to be more of the same. So um, what exactly is going on here? I think this is done by design. Oh, the other thing is they never they, they agreed to connect Russia to the SWIFT system and to end sanctions on the Russian Agricultural Bank and retract sanctions on insurance for shipping. Very important. That was part of the grain deal, and it was never implemented by the West. Mm. So Russia's pulling out, and they're being blamed as basically sabotaging the grain deal now. So you can see this is a war of propaganda. This is a war of words, and the facts speak for themselves. Right. on this. It's pretty, it's pretty clear. Right. So where does that take us then? Well, this is just another, uh, another caveat to this. Toxic contamination found in Ukrainian grain on pesticide. Uh, in some countries, these are banned pesticide chemicals. So again, the, the market for the Ukrainian grain is uh, questionable uh, at that. So what, what's going to break the impasse here? It's, it, we, we're going to need a European leader or a U.S. leader to come in and break this impasse because this conflict does not look like it's going to have a negotiated settlement. Mm -hmm. Both sides, especially the NATO Ukrainian side, side, Mike is saying that we can't have a negotiated settlement until we get every bit of Ukrainian territory back to 1991 borders. That's clearly never going to happen. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that means there's going to be no negotiations. So to keep pumping weapons in as long as the so-called so Ukrainians want to fight. Okay, so what's it going to take? This is the first. Uh, European potential high-profile European leader to come out is Marine Le Pen. This is Le Figaro uh, here on screen. Oops, sorry, we've uh, go there. Uh, and this is what she said. She said, I do not understand that Emmanuel Macron is not fully focused on the organization of a conference for peace to put an end to the war. This is what she's come out and said publicly. This is the first time she's made such a statement like this. Now, Emmanuel Macron still has time in office, mm. but uh, this is, I think, significant because of the first significant European national leader uh, to come out here and basically take a position on this, that no, this war just can't be an open-ended conflict. Yeah. So this is, I think, important. Okay, cool. Right. Uh, Alex, I'm very interested to get your thoughts on this because uh, Richard Moore, uh, C, uh, the head of MI6, uh, was giving a speech a couple of days ago. Uh, well, the, the headline that was in the mainstream uh, press was res with respect to this, uh, as they witness the venality, uh, infighting and sheer callous incompetence of their leaders. He's talking about the Russians in this part of the speech. The human factor is at its worst, he said. Uh, many Russians are wrestling with the same dilemmas and the same tugs of conscience as their predecessors did in 1968. Uh, and he went on to say, I invite them to do what others have already done this past 18 months and join hands with us. Our door is always open. So he, he's absolutely calling for so-called dissident Russians to uh, get involved with uh, with the security service. Is this a good idea? Secret intelligence service, sorry. Uh, it might not be a good idea for all of them. Uh, Sir Richard does rather hint heavily in the speech with reference to an Abwehr agent in 1944 that uh, if these enticed Russians come to a sticky end, then uh, SIS will uh, take care of their kith and kin for the next couple of generations. He's actually talking over the heads of his Czech posts in this speech. You'll find the speech in the show notes with punctuational errors, which SIS never used to make, by the way. But um, he's speaking over the Czechs' heads to the Russians and saying, uh, if you don't like it, if you think this is a repeat of the 1968 Prague Spring, and if you sympathize as, as Sakharov did with Dubček back then, then uh, join our merry crew, uh, essentially. So it's uh, bit of an un untoward statement, but yeah, I think you have more to cover on the speech. Yes, uh, just, one, just one other little quote. Let's bring it on screen. My teams are now using AI to augment but not replace their own judgment about how people might act in various situations. Uh, they're combining their skills with AI and bulk data uh, to identify and disrupt the flow of weapons to Russia for use against Ukraine. It's incredible how many excuses there are for this insatiable appetite for bulk data collection, Alex, by the security services of all kinds and the intelligence services of all kinds. Um, but uh, that's quite a, a statement there. 
particularly in light of what we've already covered today. Quite. I mean, Sir Richard is, is using, as British spokesmen do abroad, um, a lot of flowery language in the early part of the speech. Uh, people aren't destroyed, but they're pulverized and ravaged in the speech. You know, I don't think the Czechs never necessarily understood the language, but it was it was showing off for an international audience. Uh, there was a lot going on there. Who's the, the, the key idea was the human factor. But this AI towards the end is another reason why you must uh, review the Jobst Landgraber and Barry Smith interview we did on AI, uh, because Sir Richard scores a bullseye. He, he, he says the wrongest thing you could say about AI when he's at the end of the speech says the Chinese are even worse than the Russians uh, and says the Chinese are um, so bad that we're having to use uh, AI uh, to uh, assist our um, officers in deciding what our agents and our adversaries actions may be. You know, it's the very thing that Jobst and Barry say is completely impossible for AI with the credentials they have, namely judging what an individual human mind will do. They, uh, Sir Richard says, is the is the key use for AI fighting the good fight. Yes, indeed. Okay, now let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Now you can pick, pick up something at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do share anything you find on the ukcolumn.org, ukcolumnextracts.co.uk, or any of the other platforms. So I'll just mention uh, that a couple of things that are going on on the website at the moment. David Cartland, uh, an interview uh, that was up yesterday. If you didn't see it uh, on yesterday's uh, 1 p.m. live stream, that is there. You can follow that up. Uh, quick advertisement for uh, the latest Freedom Festival, uh, Freedom Music Fest 2023. This is Katie Jo Murphy's uh, event. Uh, taking place what starts today, taking place over the next couple of days. Uh, I'm sure everybody is welcome at that. Uh, reminder that AV13 is taking place on the 22nd of October 2023. Um, and uh, the AV team would just like us to remind everybody about that. Tickets still available if you want to, to go to that. Uh, and Alex, uh, very briefly, a uh, couple of uh, nice mentions here. Down in Kent, uh, there's been this wonderful snap uh, of a gentleman out on the streets uh, urging people to switch off BBC Lies and watch UK Column. And uh, you might think, wonderful, where's this come from, however? It's come from a hat hatchet job. Kent Online, uh, all of our local papers have been amalgamated into this um, no competition environment. So it's, it's, an, uh, it's, it's a brand that doesn't really have anything to do with Kent anymore. But the local franchise in Kent, Kent Online, uh, is discussing the rebels on roundabouts who are spreading conspiracy theories in Kent. Um, so that that's UK column has got a mention uh, in local mainstream press on this basis, at least in image, not in text. But who wrote it? Daniel Essen, the local democracy reporter. He is funded, of course, by the British Broadcasting Corporation uh, because on the latest version of its charter, its license to operate from the Crown, the BBC undertook to pay 165 jobs uh, for people in various parts of the United Kingdom to report on uh, what might be called our democracy, if you're Rishi Sunak or uh, Sir Richard Moore. Uh, yes, and then you wanted to finally just remind us about uh, this on the UK Column website. Yes, uh, a Eurocrat is writing for us for the second time, Irene Lost, from Eastern Europe, uh, and she has got a thought-provoking piece up on what's really going on with the French riots. Let's talk about France, a story of mitigation. She entitles it that because she is even-handed uh, between left and right-wing anarchist and pro-government narratives on what's going on and urges people finally to face up to the, uh, the rivenness of their society. Otherwise, there will be no reconciliation. Okay, now let's uh, move on to the sexualization of children. Yes, there's really just quick mentions given um, the timing and uh, well, one segment of mine will, I'm sure, go into extra time now about legal victories against wokeness. But uh, let's bring this on screen first. This is uh, from a French bus stop. You might be able to uh, see that the République Française has put this billboard up um, at an advertising hoarding in a public place. Uh, the top right image there is Santé Publique, so it's the French public health authorities. And this is viewable to children, of course. The, the question being asked in this billboard is, uh, penetration is hurting me. What should I do? So that's uh, viewable to children. Uh, French charities and organizations are up in arms about it. This is pan-European now. It's clearly coming from UNESCO more than the EU. So uh, gripped in Ireland, a sort of equivalent of UK column, uh, has its key uh, reporter, Ben Scallon, reporting that Tusla, well known to our long-term viewers, the, uh, the agency that likes to do questionable things with uh, with children in Ireland, uh, has produced its own relationships and se sexuality education guide 
uh, think of, uh, of uh, Public Child Protection Wales here. This is the Irish version. And it's urging the staff in these to learn about cross-dressing and drag. Horrendous uh, details in here, but look particularly at this as extract. The guidance is don't be put off. Don't let your embarrassment or discomfort or theirs, this is other people, including children, put you off. You know? Ca carry on against your conscience. Wicked advice. Um, in Austria, uh, a Catholic outlet, die Tagespost, uh, has re reported on a large petition. Uh, it's the type the he headline here translates as uh, opposition is forming up to what it calls sexual pedagogy, sexualization in schools. Uh, this has been summarized in English by CNE News, based in the Netherlands, Christian Network Europe. Uh, the petition is about uh, the assumption that children are sexual beings, going back to Kinsey. Again, uh, Brian's interviews with Kim Isherwood, a, a vital background here, and uh, Louise as well at Liberty Tactics has done a lot of interviews with Kim and others about this. Here's a crucial section. The most problematic premise in, is the view that the child is being seen as a sexual being. And uh, the report notes that a paedophile activist, Helmut Kentler, I haven't actually heard of this particular specimen, uh, but these, these theories have been criticised in Britain. A suggestion here that Britain, and particularly Wales, I think, is in the lead now in, in uh, resisting this and that Central Europe is benefiting from the activism there. It's not just Catholic Central Europe in uh, Austria. The same thing is happening in Lutheran, Lutheran Norway. Vortland, quite a major outlet in Norway, is interviewing the head of uh, Save the Children, Norway. I don't think they're connected with the, the British charity of that name, uh, on plans to lower the age of consent to sexual activity in Norway. And again, CNE has an English summary of this, which if you go through to the detail of, points out that Norwegian children were surveyed on behalf of this organisation. Uh, a fairly large sample size, 880 Norwegian teenagers, were asked, do you want to have sex at a younger age? Uh, over three quarters of the girls and two thirds of the boys said, no, we do not want consent. So you have to ask, who is this for the lowering of sexual consent? Pretty obvious, I think, when you look into it more. Also from Norway, there is a queer academic interviewed by Redux uh, Feminist News and Opinion, they call themselves, who suggests that pedophilia, pederasty is a better name because pedophilia means sincere love for children, pederasty should be taught in schools as an innate sexuality. And the gentleman in question, Mr. Muen, the academic, uh, it has targeted a Norwegian feminist, the lady that some people will have heard of who faces potentially three years in prison for tweeting that men cannot be lesbians. Over in Finland, Päivi Rasanen, uh, the uh, former chairwoman of the um, Christian uh, Democrats Party, uh, who some people will remember was cleared by the prosecutor uh, over hate crime charges, is being given double jeopardy now. This was a couple of weeks ago. So persecuted to probably till the grave if things go on like this. Um, so the message there, Alex, is that, that this is not just happening in the UK or the United States. This is uh, something is happening right across uh, society in Europe and the United States. So there must be a common source for it all. If it's happening in Lutheran, Roman Catholic, Anglican, atheistic parts of Europe, non-member states of the EU like Norway and Switzerland, all at the same time, it's clearly coming from UN level and from NGOs. Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's uh, come back to the UK then. And uh, Tobias Elwood. Now, Tobias Elwood, known very well as an MP, but also a reservist with 77th Brigade. Uh, he has been in Afghanistan and he pushed out uh, a little bit of video on his uh, Twitter feed a couple of days ago, which caused quite a furore. We're just going to look at uh, 20 seconds of it or so. Head back in Helmand province in Afghanistan, courtesy of the Halo Trust. And all that's happened here since 9-11. This is a very different country in deal. It feels different now that the Taliban have returned to power. Well, it may be hard to believe, but security has vastly improved. Corruption is down and the opium trade has all but disappeared. So that was uh, quite an amazing. It went on for another couple of minutes and it was very positive, very excited about what the Taliban's doing uh, and, and so on. Unfortunately, the response he got wasn't so good because uh, he, of course, chairman, current chairman of the Defence Select Committee, uh, four of the other Defence Select Committee members, so that Mark Francois, Richard Drax, uh, Kevin Jones and Derek Twigg. Uh, well, first of all, they called him an effing idiot. Uh, but then they decided that the best thing to do would be to oust him as chairman of uh, the Defence Select Committee. So they put a motion in to do that. Uh, it remains to be seen what will happen. So Tobias Elwood very rapidly took the tweet down and replaced it with this one, uh, which is basically giving a, 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 
an apology. However well-intentioned reflections of my personal vi visit could have been worded better. It wasn't just worded badly. It was the, the happy, clappy music in behind. It was an absolute propaganda piece. But anyway, this isn't the main point. I didn't want to focus too much on that. I wanted to focus on the BBC's reaction because here they are. This is the article that they published. Uh, MP claims Afghanistan, a country transformed. And they were so irate about what Tobias Elwood did. They decided to focus on, on many of the points that he made. But I just wanted to pick the... Uh, the opium trade issue, in his tweet, they write, uh, Mr. Elwood wrote that the opium trade ended, brackets, although the accompanying video, he qualified it by saying the trade had all but disappeared. However, this claim is incorrect. This is their claim. The claim is incorrect. No, no, it's absolutely definitive. Opium cultivation, they say, in 2022 was up by 32% compared with 2021, according to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Now, that last sentence is correct. That's correct. But before we explain why the sentiment is wrong, uh, let's just inform you all about who has written this, because this is a report from BBC Verify. Um, so, of course, it must be absolutely true, mustn't it? But let's just have a look at another article that the BBC published only a couple of weeks ago, where they were absolutely crying about the fact that the Taliban had slashed the poppy crops in the last few months in, inside the Taliban's war on drugs. Opium poppy crops slashed, and let's look at the quote. The Taliban's decree wasn't applied to the 2022 opium harvest, which according to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, increased by a third over 2021. So the, uh, the BBC Vilify uh, article has made that point, but this article goes on to say, this year though is very different. The evidence we saw on the ground is backed up by imagery taken from above. So the BBC has itself confirmed a couple of weeks ago what Tobias Elwood has said in his little uh, video. And then the BBC has written an article saying that Tobias Elwood was wrong. So the BBC seems to be very, very confused about what reality is. And BBC Verify seems to be very confused about what reality is, because it's clear, Alex, isn't it, that in fact, reality is whatever suits the political narrative at the time. And the BBC always wants to push the political narrative at the time. There is this uh, unspoken imperative, isn't there, at the BBC and other public broadcasters um, to please the master. That's what the increasing numbers of whistleblowers coming out of mainstream journalism, legacy media, as Brian correctly calls it, they're all telling us this, that uh, if you know what side your bread is buttered, as we often say in Britain, uh, you will not criticise, you will not bite the hand that feeds. You know, that uh, uh, going back to Sir Richard in Prague as well, I mean, he started his speech. I know this isn't the BBC, but... Um, he started his speech by saying, uh, I should come humbly. Any Brit should come humbly to the Czechs uh, because of the past and the wartime past. But he didn't see fit to mention Monty Norman helping the Nazis filch Czech gold, did he? As uh, Pat mentioned earlier in the news, that was left out. Indeed. OK, let's let's come on, Alex, then to uh, opposition parties in Europe. People will perhaps be aware of the Forum for Democracy in the Netherlands. Uh, Thierry Baudet is the party leader. Um, they actually have quite a strong English-speaking and international arm to them now, uh, and they have a strong showing in the Dutch Parliament. It's John Lochland, the Paris-based geopolitical commentator, uh, who heads up FED International. Here, uh, they have a, a, a video which, if you find the link from show notes, you can also turn on the subtitles using that cogwheel and subtitle button next to the cogwheel. You can get auto-translated English to find out what's going on here. The party leader, Baudet, uh, and uh, Mr. Bosma of his party are... Uh, having a hearing at, at a committee stage so it's it's between uh, inter-party but they're they're challenging the minister of the interior and kingdom relations in the netherlands uh for suggesting um that you know there are threats to democracy which uh, may be so far reaching that in baudet's interpretation the fvd the forum for democracy might end up getting banned um so that's worth watching the telegraph a popular or populist uh tabloid we can call it uh, reports that FED um, is uh, keen to raise this issue with other uh, parties uh, because a cabal, what the FED themselves would call the cartel of parties, has formed. These experts from, uh, of, of 12, uh, 12 experts who are uh, at the, initi the initiative of party leaders in parliament have been uh, called to discuss threats to democracy. And there are quotations here, like the one on screen, uh, which show that some of the party leaders have decided to take this opportunity 
to say that the FED just doesn't pass muster, don't need, uh, isn't worth it, is a hard idiom to translate, uh, is uh, is morally insufficient, is the suggestion of this idiom. So uh, one of the party leaders in, in Parliament is telling the Telegraph directly, we are out to ban the FVD, um, because they, they say that the FVD is undermining our democracy and causing uh, alarm. Um, what else is going on here? In uh, Germany, you have to look very hard to see what all the fuss is about here, but this is the um, uh, outcome of the l- most recent elections for district-level uh, public authorities, known as Landsrat in Germany. If you look in the middle of Germany, you will see one paler blue blotch uh, just north of all the Bavarian darker blue CSU-controlled uh, Landsrats. There's one just in, inside Thuringia, which is now uh, has an elected Landsrat belonging to the Alternative für Deutschland party, the rough equivalent of the FPD in the, in the Netherlands. Uh, this caused a real stink, as you can imagine. So T-Online, a, a news amassing service read by millions of Germans because it's on the back of an old telecom monopoly, um, is reporting that uh, the gentleman in question, Mr. Sesselmann, uh, a softly spoken employment lawyer with, with plump cheeks here, is a great threat to democracy. So they're checking his validity. They have this wonderful German phrase, Eignungsprüfung auf Verfassungstreue, meaning scrutinizing for loyalty to the constitution, which was initiated a few weeks ago. I don't have any updates on it, but uh, at province level, at, La- at, at Bundesland level, the same state, Thuringia, uh, was going to have an AFD man chairing um, the um, parliament there, the regional, the land parliament. And Angela Merkel, when she was still chancellor, told them straight out, you will rerun this vote, the wrong man has been elected. So that's still going on. And this this Eignungsprüfung uh, is only meant to allow the insane to be excluded uh, from uh, from office. So there's some the real worries going on there uh, amongst the, the Germans. For um, the, main, the mainstream, anyway, about the rise of parliamentary, represent, parliamentary representation uh, by those who are not signed up to the, the cartel view, shall we say. Um, Red Pill Germany has done a good co- coverage of this from a few weeks ago, which will be linked in the show notes. Good uh, English language summary. And finally, on this, um, Remix is reporting, which often has accurate coverage from the hard right, but accurate uh, on what's going on here. So um, there has been an admission openly on Twitter by an activist that in order to defeat the AFD as it finds more elected representation like its first elected Landtag now, Germany must bring in more migrants and immediately give them the franchise. This has been claimed by the founder of a migrant rescue boat non-governmental organization. There he is, Mr. Axel Steyer, who says that uh, if we had had enough import of people from uh, abroad, uh, including by re- uh, removing the uh, visa requirement for Afghans so they can just fly from Kabul and become Germans. And if we had immediately f- enfranchised all these new Germans, Herr Zonneberg would not have been an issue today. So let's open the borders. Pretty clear what's going on there. So it's finally coming up. <laughs> so the story's uh, finally finally bubbling up. So the latest FBI documents. So $10 million bribes. Okay. Now, mind you, this comes from, this comes from an informant. So this is what they call a 1023 in the U.S. with the FBI. However, however, these allegations, Mike, can be corroborated by a number of uh, data points that are in the public domain. And least of all, so the, what the mail is saying here in this headline is that uh, Burisma CEO says, uh, that Hunter Biden was stupid but necessary to keep on the board because his dad, who was vice president at the time, could protect them from problems. Okay? Is that true or false? Well, let's listen to Joe Biden himself in 2018 here uh, at this, I think it was a CFR event or, or at Harvard University. Go ahead. Roll this. Um, I remember going over convincing our team, our others, to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and uh, and I was going supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had. They were walking out to press conference. Said, "No, nah, I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars." 
I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid at the time. So that kind of proves the, uh, the accusation of this, this informant here. Um, and that's the point here. But let's look at this uh, again. So here's the big question. So there was an investigation. It wasn't into Hunter Biden from the Ukrainian prosecutor's office, right? It was something else. So what was the Ukraine prosecutor's investigation looking for? And if you remember, Mike, on this program a couple of weeks ago, I think it was in June, this was the investigation here. This was a massive money laundering scandal. Charges brought against Burisma owner there, Zhezhevsky, uh, that he is accused of legalization, laundering funds obtained illicitly from a state budget uh, for the purchases of bonds through Franklin Templeton Investments. That's a state bond scam worth $7.4 billion. You will not hear about this in the U.S. media, and why? Because this goes all the way up to the top levels of the Democrat and Republican donor class, including BlackRock, okay? The, everybody's got their hands on this, and Obama's top donors. So this is all about Hunter Biden. But that's, and what, what, anyway, what this proves is that, remember when Trump got done for impeachment for uh, allegedly telling Zelensky to investigate what the Bidens were up to? Well, the FBI should have investigated that years ago. Yeah. And so this proves that Trump was just asking uh, the Ukrainians to investigate what the FBI already knew about and should have been investigating mm. before that. So in a way, that's uh, vindication of sorts, but um, slap on the wrist. I don't know. I don't think anybody's going to get indicted for anything serious on this, but there will be a political price to pay. And it could mean the removal of Joe Biden prematurely from the presidential race. Just saying. So watch this we space. We will watch this space. Okay. Well, I'm afraid we've got to leave it there for today. So thank you very much to Alex and thank you to Patrick for joining us today. We'll be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra if you're a UK column member. Uh, but otherwise, we'll see you at 1 p.m. on Monday as usual. Have a great, great weekend. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.